our reading this morning is from Genesis 15. It is a pivotal chapter in the Bible for us, and it's reflected in many of the verses that we've already read or responded to this morning about a covenant with Abraham. Attend now to the word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in an, at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
sorry. Good morning. Um, my name is Ben Milner, and um, I was hired by Redeemer in 2002, coming out of seminary when I couldn't find any other job. And uh, I don't know what that says about y'all or me, but um, I also became a Christian here in 1992 uh, as a senior at Wake Forest. And um, this is a wonderful church. If you haven't been here before or if you're new or if you're someone who's been around for a while, just uh, appreciate the fact that this was probably the first church in, in the city that was um, kind of evangelical and that sang praise songs, uh, that wore jeans and T-shirts and uh, also known as Calvinist hippies. I've heard that term applied to this church. This was the church... Uh, who that, that essentially named Redeemer New York, where Tim Keller was a pastor. I think that's true. I've heard that from many different, Rob, okay. Uh, this is the church that actually, they got their name. They, they stole our name, okay. Um, this is a church that has planted churches all over the, the county, and also in Guilford County. Um, it could have become a huge church, a mega church, but it didn't decide to do that. Instead, it decided to plant churches, which I think is much wiser. It's a much wiser course. Um, it's a very powerful church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. absolutely love this church. Um, so just appreciate the fact that you have, um, you're part of this legacy that goes way back. Huge influence on the city of Winston-Salem. Um, I did not know Georgia was preaching on the book of Genesis. So um, let me give you a quick preview uh, of, of uh, Genesis 1 through 11, what you're going to hear when Georgia preaches. So in Genesis 1 through 3, God makes this beautiful world. Creation is very good. Uh, human beings are also the crown of creation. We're very good. We're made in God's image. We're made in covenant with God to have a relationship with God. And humans break that covenant, and we join a rebellion. The serpent and uh, all, the fo all those who follow the serpent, otherwise known as Satan, um, start a rebellion against God. And humans join in that rebellion, and we break our covenant with God, and we join in a covenant with Satan against God. And in Genesis 3.15... Really important, pivotal passage. Uh, like Susan was saying about this passage, Genesis 3.15 is a crucial passage to the whole story of the Bible. God says right when human beings have joined allegiance to the serpent against God, uh, God says, I am going to start a rebel army that is going to fight against this empire that has been formed by humans aligning themselves with Satan. And I'm going to create this kingdom of God where I'm going to create enmity between them and the devil, and one day someone's going to come forth from the kingdom and destroy the devil, even as he is wounded by the devil. It's Genesis 3.15. So Genesis 1 through 11, you see this little flicker of the kingdom. There's not much there. It's pretty dark. The empire grows. You have the flood. You have the Tower of Babel. Really bad news, Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, and he says, I am going to make you the father of the great nation. You're going to be the one who leads the kingdom. And um, you're going to have this gigantic um, offspring that, that are going to dwell in this land of Israel. He takes Abraham out of the empire, out of the Babylonian empire, and brings him to this little kingdom. And he says, I am going to use this uh, to undermine the, the empire. And, I'm going to, and I am going to, to start a rebellion and one of, your, your, one of your offspring is going to be the one that crushes the serpent's head. So um, that was Genesis 12. 
Now, Genesis 15, we find Abraham doubting that promise. Um, you know, he's basically saying, I, I'm not sure what you're doing. You made that promise, but I don't see anything happening. Uh, evil is still winning. Uh, what's going on? And then in the midst of Abraham's doubt, uh, God reassures him and says, look, Abraham, I'm going to put my life on the line to prove to you that I'm going to do what I said. So I want to look at those two things, the mistrust of Abraham, and not just Abram, but all of us, the mistrust, the unbelief. And then in the middle of our unbelief, God continues to always reassure us, continually assuring us that he's still there with us, that the kingdom purposes are still happening, that the empire is going to fall, that one day this entire earth will be filled with the glory of God when he makes everything new. Okay, so first of all, mistrust. Um, we saw uh, in, in Genesis 12 that, that even though God promised this kingdom to Abraham, he actually fled down to Egypt when a famine came and uh, completely lost hope and faith in God. That was, that was Genesis 12. Immediately, there's that distrust. God rescues Abraham down in Egypt, brings him back to Canaan. And then in Genesis 13 through 14, we see Abraham learning to trust God again. Um, and now in Genesis 15, there's more mistrust. So clearly this relationship with God uh, is, is, a, is a matter of always uh, doubting and then coming back to faith and then doubting and coming back to faith. It's a complicated journey. If you have a relationship with God, it's going to always include both of those things. So um, now in Genesis 15, Abraham's afraid. He's afraid. In verse 1, it says, fear not, Abram, because Abram's afraid. Because what's happened here is that he's gotten older. Uh, his wife is older. Uh, there's no prospect of a child. There's no way a great nation could come from him. And so he feels like God has completely forgotten him. And I know that we feel the same way at times, that God has made these promises to us. We don't see much evidence of those promises, and we get afraid. And uh, that's what's going on here. He says, um, do not be afraid, because I know you're afraid, and I'm saying I'm still here. I'm right here with you. There's no recrimination at all from God. He says, I am your shield, and your reward is very great. I'm still with you. I'm still defending you. I'm still going to give you this reward. I'm right there. I have not left you. And interestingly, when God does that, and this is, this is a very true insight about the human heart. When God reassures him, it creates this outburst. Notice what Abraham does. As soon as God says, don't be afraid, I am your shield, I'm your reward, Abraham basically says, uh, one translation says, what good are these promises when I don't even have a son? It's bitter, very bitter. The mistrust is deep there. I mean, we do this all the time. When God comes and reassures us of some of his promises, um, kind of the first instinct is to get angry because you're not seeing it happen. I remember back when we were starting our, our church plant, which started as a 5 p.m. service here, and um, I would come home and complain. Most Sunday evenings, I would come home and complain to my wife. You know, only 30 people showed up today. Um, the Johnson family wasn't even here again. It's over. It's over. This is, this is collapsing. There's no way um, that this is going to work. Um, this is a failure. I'm a failure. And then she would always say, well, you have me and the children. You know, you still have us. And I would say, what good are you when, I, when the church 
is failing, which is essentially what Abraham says. You know, what, what good are these promises when, when my servant Eleazar of Damascus is going to be the one that will inherit? So there's bitterness there when God tries to comfort him. And um, notice the blank space between verse 2 and 3. Whenever you see a blank space in the Bible when someone's talking and the, the, the little phrase ends, the, the quote ends, and then there's, there's another quote that starts, that means that there's a pause there. And so um, there's a long pause between two and three. Abram says, what will you give me? And then God's just sitting there waiting. He says nothing. And then Abram gets even more mad. Look, you have given me no offspring. So there's just this wave after wave of this mistrust and bitterness. And then God with wave after wave of comfort. Look at verse 4. God just simply says, this man shall not be your heir. Eliezer of Damascus will not be your heir. See, Abraham's thinking that uh, since he's not going to have a biological child, it's going to have to be one of his servants that will be the one to whom the promise comes. And God says, no, you, you, have a, you will have a son. Your very own son will be your heir. And then basically he says, you know, you don't believe me? God says, you don't believe me? Let me give you a visual of what I'm saying. And this is a very famous passage in the, in the Bible, and a lot of people don't realize the context here. The, the God giving him this vision of the stars comes in the context of Abram's mistrust. Verse 5, God brought Abram outside and said, look towards the heaven and try to count the stars, if you're able to do so. And then there's this long pause. Again, another one of those pauses, long dramatic pause. And then he says to him, so shall your offspring be. Not only are you going to have one son, your offspring are going to fill the sky. It'll be a sky full of stars, your offspring. And if you go to certain places on the earth, um, you can see as many f as 5,000 stars with the naked eye. It looks like a cloud almost. I, I Googled that, looked at pictures of uh, skies that are just full of stars in the evening in the remote Mountains of Chile is one of the best places you can see this. Um, they're different colors. The stars are different sizes. It's not like they all look the same. Um, it's almost like a rainbow. They're different brightnesses. And so God is saying, I mean, this is a world without any light pollution where Abram's looking at these stars. And so God is saying, okay, my, my words clearly are not doing it for you. And so let me give you a visual of what I'm saying. So, again, mistrust, reassurance, this sky full of stars and the stars if you think about this this is written in uh, 2000 BC now we have reached essentially 2000 AD 4,000 years later and uh, the stars are all of us that are the children of Abram the stars are the early Christians in the catacombs and then in the house churches all around the Mediterranean and then the cathedrals medieval Europe, and now in parking lots <laughs> in Winston-Salem and fields. Uh, the church is, there's um, over a billion Christians in the world today. So this is the sky full of stars. This is all the things that the kingdom of God have done, hospitals and universities and human rights and breweries and art and sciences. Um, we take so much for granted all the things that the kingdom of God have brought on this planet. But that's the sky full of stars. Abram's saying, uh, ha have you, have you, God's saying, have you forgotten, Abram, this 
incredible promise that I have made to you, that there will be a kingdom that will come and it will undermine uh, the evil world we live in and one day we'll bring it all down. So I think the question, the, the main application for us is, you know, what have you seen before that God has shown you? Some kind of vision of the kingdom of God that he's given you particularly. Maybe it's your vocation, whatever the call was, and, um, and you, are, you are doubting you're not trusting him. It might be the forgiveness of your sins. It could just be one of you, that you're an adopted child of God. It could be that you'll be raised from the dead one day. I mean, how much fear of death is there that basically is mistrusting those promises? But maybe even think about a time when God has come to you personally and spoken to you. Now, I'm not a charismatic. I'm a Presbyterian pastor, so we are <laughs> by trade not charismatics. But uh, there was a night recently where I was... Uh, I was very afraid, like Abram was afraid. I was afraid that um, the baptismal promises of God upon my uh, children were not coming true. Um, and so I was terrified. I went to bed, uh, very frightened. I had a hard time going to bed. And then later that night, um, again, I'm not a charismatic, but uh, I felt I, God woke me up. And the only way I could put it is that he visited me. That's the only word that I can use, is that he visited me. And it's really hard to even talk about, but it literally felt like God was just pouring liquid heat and joy into my body. It was like it was vibrating or something. I mean, there's n there was no way uh, to, to deny the fact that that was God. Uh, it was not just some kind of physiological reaction. I mean, it was that, but it was not just that. And um, I had this absolute assurance where God was saying, I'm real, I'm here, I've not abandoned you, I've not abandoned your children, it's all true. It's all true. The kingdom of God is reigning on this planet. The empire is falling. But then a few days later, you know, the mistrust creeps back in. It's like that's not enough. It's not enough. And even after the stars, Abram doubts in verse 8. He says, uh, oh, Lord God. I mean, this is after the stars. How am I to know that I shall possess this? How am I to know that that thing you just showed me, that incredible vision of the stars, um, how am I to know that I shall possess this? I want proof. I want collateral. I want a guarantee. I want something that will show me that it's true. And if I were God, and thank God I'm not God, if I were God, that would have been the last straw. I would have said, I've told you four times that I, I, I showed you the whole star thing, and you're still doubting me. And you're asking me, how can I know for certain? Uh, but the real God says, okay, words didn't work, and stars didn't work, so I'm going to write it in my very own blood. And this is where this passage gets really crazy. Um, and this is why Susan said that it's so pivotal in the history of redemption, because of this, this assurance that God gives to Abraham is absolutely amazing. And uh, I want to look at that now, the mistrust and then now the, the assurance. And it starts with this very simple command where God says to Abram, uh, verse 9, bring me a cow and a goat. Actually, it's a couple cows, a goat and a ram and the birds. So bring me these animals. These are sacred, clean animals. Uh, the very fact that Abram has to do this shows how much God values animals. Uh, the fact that God would ask him to kill these animals shows how much God loves animals, or else it would be a meaningless saying. 
You know, if it was just a plant or if it was dirt, it wouldn't matter. God loves these animals. And so he's saying, bring me my precious animals. And um, as soon as God told Abram to do that, Abram knew exactly what was going on. Because in Sumerian cultures in the ancient Near East, there were these things called uh, the blood path. It's very gruesome. So uh, if you like gruesome things, uh, I know like a lot of kids like things that are kind of gross. Listen carefully. Uh, It says that Abram brought these these animals. He he had a lot of animals. And he brought them out. He cut them in half. I don't know what that would have been like. Um, I'm assuming as humanely as possible. But he killed them. And then not only did he kill them, but he sawed them in half. That's not easy to do with a cow. He laid each half on a path, it says in verse 10. Now, the way these things worked was you would choose a ditch. So imagine like a ditch that kind of slopes down a hill a little bit, like a creek bed that's dry. And now you've got these two halves of these animals on either side of that creek bed, and the blood is rushing into the middle of that creek bed. And, uh, and it's, it's rushing. There's a lot of blood. And so this is how you would confirm the very most serious covenants that you ever made with someone. Uh, it says on ver- in verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant. So obviously this is what's going on. This is a covenant-making ceremony. And when, when someone got married, um, or w- when one king conquered another king and they were going to make a covenant between them, um, the w- in the marriage example, the groom would walk through the, the blood path. And actually, the robes would get splattered with blood. And then the father of the bride would walk through after that. The more powerful party would walk through secondly. And then they would both say, let it be done to me as to these animals if I do not keep every word of the covenant. If the son does not treat the father's daughter well, if the father does not provide the son with the inheritance, let, it, let me die. That's how serious I am about this covenant. So uh, imagine doing a wedding today where you kill animals like that. Um, Nobody's asked me to do that yet. You know, rings are a, a lot more sanitary form of uh, covenant making now. Uh, but this is why Abraham hesitates. I mean, I would hesitate. He's just asked God, show me for certain, and now he's bit off more than he can chew. Because he realizes, oh my gosh, uh, this is not going to go well with me. Because um, I'm essentially here being asked by the creator of the universe to enter into a covenant whereby I have to keep my side of the promises. And he's saying he will keep his side of the promises. And he waits so long that it says in verse 11, these vultures come down and they uh, have to be shooed away. Abraham kind of shoes them away because he's waiting so long. He doesn't want to walk through that blood path because as soon as he walks through that blood path, it's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to have to die. Um, because he's, he's already failed in Egypt once. Uh, he knows how faithless his heart is. He knows that he cannot keep his end of the deal. And so God does this remarkable thing um, where he doesn't make Abraham walk through. In fact, to prove that, he puts him into a deep, deep, dark sleep. Uh, the, the language in Hebrew is, uh, is fairly... Uh, ominous here. In verse 12, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and dreadful darkness, uh, dreadful being a word that almost uh, implies like death is near. He's almost like in a coma, and it says these things fell on him because God did these things. He was passive. 
So imagine Abram uh, with that blood path in front of him, and now darkness has fallen upon him. And God is saying, A, you can't keep this, and B, you should be dead right now. That's what the deep sleep means. And somehow in that vision, and I don't know if he could see still, you know, he could have entered a state where he could still some, somehow see what was happening, even though he was in a deep sleep. I don't know how that worked. But it, it, it does say in verse 17 that he saw this happen. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, which is a word that means look, take a look. This is amazing. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That's a really weak translation. I heard one guy say that it's almost like lightning striking and, and kind of a s just taking a snapshot or one of those uh, live photos, you know, and on the f your phone. where you it's, And they just keep showing that lightning coming down, like smoke, fire breaking out. I mean, if you know the Old Testament at all, in the wilderness, right, on Mount Sinai, what does God appear? In, in a theophany, a, a, a revelation of God, God always appears as smoke and fire. It's very dramatic, frightening things. And so that's what's going on here. This is God, and, and I don't know for sure, but it might be even that first God walks through the pieces as a fire pot to symbolize, I'm going to keep my end of the covenant. And then he walks through as a flaming torch, and he's saying, I'm going to keep your end of the covenant, so that if you fail, I will be ripped in half. And this is the creator of the universe walking alone through that blood path and saying, I'm going to bear all the consequences of your mistrust and all of your unbelief. I'm going to absorb that. Your entire relationship with me, from first to last, I will absorb all of the sin and all of the faithfulness that you bring into the relationship with me, and I'm going to bless you. So what he's saying is, may I be ripped apart if I don't keep my end of the deal, and may I be ripped apart if you don't keep your end of the deal. And of course, Abram does fail, and Israel fails, and the disciples fail, and the churches fail. Like, read church history. It's a nightmare. And then we fail, because we are the church. And God says, I am going to come, and I am going to be ripped in half on the cross, Jesus Christ, God incarnate comes and he bears the entire penalty of the covenant. And so when we're faithless, he gets ripped apart. And when he's faithful, we get declared righteous. We get all of his faithfulness, all of his righteousness. That's why Paul says it's credited to you as righteousness. Verse 6, he believed the Lord and it was credited to him or counted to him or imputed to him as righteous. Not that Abraham was righteous at all. Not that you're righteous but that God credits you with his righteousness and his faithfulness. And at this meal, we are not coming up here and saying, look how righteous I am. Aren't I a good Christian? Aren't I better than my neighbors? Aren't I a wonderful, shining example of light? We are coming up here not, not to declare how righteous we are, but to say, look how righteous God has counted me in my faithlessness, in my mistrust. Look how amazingly God has counted. Know for certain, in verse 13, that your offspring will be in this land. Know for certain that you will inherit the kingdom. Because the land is always an example of the kingdom. Know for certain. In other words, I will do anything to prove my love for you, 
I will walk into hell to prove my love for you, and I will give you my very body and blood to prove that I love you. And so on the night uh, that he was betrayed, uh, our Lord Jesus took bread. This is a piece of bread. (laughs) You can't see it. Uh, And he took this bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, uh, this is my body. I'm giving you my life, giving you my righteousness, broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup, and when he had poured the wine in the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. This is the blood passed. And so... Whenever we eat the bread and whenever we drink from the cup, we're proclaiming once again that even as I walk with God every day in my relationship with him, I can just count on the fact that I'm going to mistrust him. He's going to be faithful to me, and he's going to keep bearing all the consequences of my sin. That's what we come and say at this table. So if you are someone who doesn't know uh, exactly what you believe, I know Redeemer loves it and has always loved it when people come here and they don't really know what they believe. They might even think that they, uh, they are not a believer. I came here as an atheist, so I love the fact that this church has always been a place for non-believers to come and explore the faith. Now, if you're in that position, when I came as an atheist, I wanted someone to tell me what to do at this table. And so Rick Downs told me, he said, if you don't believe these things, it would not be a good idea to come up here because we're not just playing around here. This is powerful. This is real. Um, and those of you who are believers who are going to come up here, you should know that too. Uh, God's not just messing with symbols here. Something real happens. The presence of Christ is real here. Uh, so um, if, you, if, you are, if you are not going to come and partake, just know that those who do come and partake are coming as beggars. We're not saying we're better than you. We're saying we need God's grace desperately, and we know that. And that's all we, we know is that God has given us this faith. So uh, let me pray for us, and then Rob's going to come up here and, and uh, give us instruction. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you that you... Uh, walked the blood path alone. You walked alone. And when you did so, uh, you knew what that would mean for you. Uh, You knew you would be working with faithless, fickle people who uh, are rebels. Uh, You knew it. And you wanted to be with us anyway. You, You gladly are with us. You don't begrudge it. You are so patient with us shocked by it. We pray that we would feel it at this supper in Jesus' name. Amen.